It is a, uh, a real privilege to be here this morning, and um, thank you for being so gracious to, uh, to my family and I. We are going to be in the letter to the Hebrews this morning, so if you will take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews chapter 13. And as you turn, if you will stand with me in honor of the reading of the Word of God, we will read this powerful passage this morning, and I pray that as we read it, that it will sink deep within you, and I pray that it will take root in your heart through the power of God's Holy Spirit. Hebrews chapter 13 Beginning in verse 7 and going through verse 16, may God's people hear what the Spirit says to them this morning. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Through him then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Will you pray with me? Father, thank you for your word. Father, it is my deepest desire to open up the word to your people so that they might understand it, so they might apply it to their lives, and so they might see the glory of Christ Jesus. But God, I am not sufficient for these things. I plead with you this morning that your Holy Spirit will be present among us and that he might do a work in the hearts and minds of the people here. I pray that your spirit might teach us, and that your spirit will take these words, your words, apply them to each of our hearts, open our eyes to see the glories of Christ, And Father, I pray this morning that you will 
strengthen and build up your church, all for your glory. And we pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen. You may be seated. I've had to preach this sermon and especially this text to myself in one form or another off and on over the past year. Some of you uh, may be aware that last October, in fact the day after the Christ Center Churches Conference, there was um, a vote by a group within my church uh, attempting to fire me. So if I don't remember you, remember meeting you at the Christ Center Churches Conference last year, just know that nothing personal, I just had a lot on my mind. I still keep several notes under the glass top of the desk in my study to remind me of how quickly opinions can change. One of those notes that I probably should throw away, but I keep holding on to. It reads something like this. Pastor George, words can never express how pleased I am that our Lord sent you and your family to our church. I know that I am not the only one, as many of us feel the same way. As long as I have been in the word, I have learned more in my old age from my God that he has given you to me. I love the way you tell the stories. I have heard others feel the same way as I do. So many feel so blessed having you and your family with us. Many of us say we wish others would come and hear what God has to say to them. Not six months later, the woman who wrote this note was attending a different church, was spreading rumors about me, and had publicly on Facebook called me a cheat and compared my preaching to Joel Osteen. Seminary does not teach you how to deal with such hurt. Opinions can change so, so quickly. If you are devoted to the gospel, if you are devoted to God's word, then even the kindest words can turn into daggers at a moment's notice. And you may have experienced the same kind of deep wounds from family or friends. Everything can be warm and cordial, and then you shift the conversation towards Christ and the gospel, and, and the, the temperature in the room noticeably drops. We have several college students at our church with unbelieving families, and they express the difficulties of sharing the gospel with their, their own parents and siblings. They can talk about anything else, but you bring up Christ, and all of a sudden, That's out of bounds. Or maybe you've experienced rejection or ridicule from coworkers or even strangers with whom you've shared the gospel. I used to unload trucks overnight at Target. And I was the one that was actually in the trailer bringing the boxes off the truck. And I worked with not just unbelievers, but unbelievers who were very hostile to the gospel, and so night after night, for hours on end, I'd have to listen to their mocking of Christianity, because they knew who I was, and they knew that I was a Christian. And you may have experienced the exact same situation. 
the exact same circumstances. And the question that I want to ask you this morning is how do you react? How do you react? How do you respond to such hostility and rejection? Do we respond, as I recall, a friend of mine on Facebook posting, I'm sick and tired of Christians being treated with disrespect by the world. It's time for us to let our voices be heard. Amen. Is that how we react? I'm sick and tired of Christians being walked all over. Or maybe we go the other direction and we crawl into a cave as far away from the world as possible. Maybe we slink through life, the ever-wary, camouflaged Christian, and try not to do or say anything that might draw attention. You are probably aware of the Supreme Court decision last week where the court ruled in favor of Jack Phillips, the Colorado cake maker who uh, had been fined for not designing a cake for a same-sex wedding in 2012. And the court ruled in his favor and overturned his fine and and we wonder for a moment if, in fact, the opinions of the judicial system might be swinging back in our way. And you'd certainly think that if you listen to the extremes on both sides. The extremes on the LGBT side are lamenting that, that woe is us, the Christians are going to oppress us. Or on the other extreme side, you hear the rejoicing of conservatives who think that this marks a new day in our country. But the much more sober-minded analysts are not so optimistic. They remind us that this decision really didn't settle anything. The court may have stated that the interest of religious objectors should be taken seriously, but they don't define what it means. The decision leaves the issue of freedom of religion and freedom of speech completely unresolved. The decision ruled that no anti-discrimination law could be openly hostile to religious beliefs, but it still leaves room for the state to mask their hostility behind other reasons and still bring lawsuits against Christians. And the decision of the court revealed the conflicting attitudes of the various justices. For example, Justice Kennedy ruled in favor of Phillips in this case, but only three years ago, he voted in favor of legalizing same-sex marriage in the country. And the two dissenting judges stated that hostility towards religion is irrelevant because a state statute protecting gay rights trumps the constitutional protection of religious liberty. We can't be fooled by these momentary quote-unquote victories. As time goes on, I become more and more convinced that if I don't find myself in a jail cell, if they remain faithful, my children and definitely my grandchildren will. And it will probably have to do with some kind of anti-discrimination or hate speech law. Now don't get me wrong, we, we all want to live peaceful lives as Christians. We all want to be unmolested by the government. We want to see the Christian worldview vindicated. But our lives of religious freedom in America are the rare exception. They're not the rule. The more common experience for Christians in this world sounds more like Daniel 3.15. 
Now, if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Our lives as Christians will be marked more by hostility and opposition to the Nebuchadnezzars of this world rather than peaceful Listen to how the writer to the Hebrews describes the experiences of his audience in Hebrews chapter 10. You endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction and sometimes being partners with those so treated. You had compassion on those in prison. You joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. Paul told the Christians in Asia Minor that it is through many tribulations that we must enter the kingdom of God. And he told Timothy, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. How do we respond? Do we respond with anger? Do we respond with bitterness? Do we respond with despair? Do we go through life just throwing pity parties for ourselves? Oh, woe is us. We are Christians and everyone hates us. How do we respond? The letter to the Hebrews, as the title suggests, was written to Jewish Christians who due to opposition, being ostracized in the culture, being imprisoned, having their property confiscated, suffering all manner of abuse, are being tempted to abandon Christianity and return to Second Temple Judaism with its Levitical priesthood and the ceremonies and the animal sacrifices. And really, who could blame them? Persecution began for them the moment that they left Judaism and became a Christian. And so the thought process goes, if we leave Christianity and go back to our former religion, then the persecution will end. Our suffering will end. But for, four, for 12 chapters in this book, the writer has taken great pains to show that, that leaving the church and going back to the temple and the ceremonies would be a fatal error because all of the institutions and practices of the Mosaic Covenant were pointing to Jesus all along. He is the goal of all Old Testament revelation. And so going through the book of Hebrews systematically, we see that Jesus is better than the angels. He's better than Moses. He's better than Joshua. He's better than all of the Levitical priests. He's better than the sacrifices. He establishes a new and better covenant. His death actually cleanses his people from their sin. He brings a more lasting rest in a land more glorious than Palestine. He has ushered us not to Mount Sinai, but to Mount Zion. And in him, as chapter 11 says, all of the Old Testament saints trusted. 
By warnings and explanations, the writer has held up the full sufficiency and glory of Jesus. And now as he comes to the end of the letter, he wants to close with some final exhortations. How are they to finally respond? Because understanding that Christ is the goal of all the types and shadows of the Old Testament doesn't make their sufferings disappear. They are going to finish reading the book. They are going to have a fuller understanding of Jesus. They are going to shut the letter. They are going to go out and be thrown in jail. And so in these final exhortations, he means to bring some final encouragement to suffering saints. And it is my prayer, even if you are not suffering in the same manner as we read about here in Hebrews, that maybe this will bring you some encouragement as well. And maybe this will spur you on to love and good deeds. And maybe it will spur you on and, and fire you up to be more zealous for evangelism. So I've split these verses into three parts. And we'll summarize them like this. Don't be led astray. Don't be ashamed. Don't give up. Don't be led astray. Don't be ashamed. Don't give up. Look back at our passage in chapter 13, verses 7 through 9. Remember your leaders. Those who spoke to you the word of God, consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. This is reminiscent of chapter 2, verse 3, and, and we're probably going to hop around the, the letter to the Hebrews a lot. If you can follow along, great. If not, just pay careful attention as we look at this. Remember your leaders. He's, he's referencing back to chapter 2, verse 3, where he reminds the people that, that the message of the gospel, it was declared at first by the Lord and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. The, the writer to the Hebrews is second, second generation Christian, and so he's calling upon these Christians Remember those who originally brought the gospel to you. Recall their message. Recall what they said to you. And he calls upon the people to do three things. Remember their leaders. Consider the outcome of their way of life. And then imitate their faith. Now as he calls upon them to remember, he is calling upon them to remember the message. Remember what they said to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life. I, and many commentators, take this to reference the fact that these leaders are probably dead. They're probably gone. They have probably run the race, and they have perhaps even suffered martyrdom. They are part of the great cloud of witnesses that we read about at the end of chapter 11 and the beginning of chapter 12. Consider the outcome of their way of life. Consider how they lived. Consider that even to the point of death, they persevered. That they, they finished the race. They, they completed the course. They have received their reward. Remember them. Remember the message. Consider how they lived. Consider the, the, 
the end of their life and then imitate them. Imitate them. Sounds a lot like Paul's writings to Timothy. Places like 2 Timothy chapter 1. Paul tells Timothy, don't be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God who saved us and called us to a holy calling. Not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel for which I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Paul, at the end of his life, he is writing to his, his friend, his, his son in the faith, and he is urging him, remember my message. Remember the gospel. Consider my life. Consider what's happened to me. Consider my imprisonment. Consider that I'm not ashamed of the gospel. That I am sure that God will guard my, my life, my reward, until the the day that I meet him. And imitate me. Imitate me. Imitate me in my suffering. Don't be ashamed. But follow. Follow in my footsteps. We follow the examples of faith and, and perseverance that we read about in the New Testament. Think of 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Paul again writing to the church in Corinth, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction. He, he begins this letter by giving thanks to God for being his comforter. But he, he continues by saying that he comforts us in all our afflictions so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. He continues in verse 8 to say, We do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experience in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. The reason why Paul goes through his suffering is so that he might depend on God, and so that we might depend on God also. Remember your leaders. Remember the message that they, they proclaimed. Consider how they persevered. Consider how they endured to the end. And don't stop there. Imitate their way of life. Imitate their way of life. To summarize that verse, he's saying they didn't give up. You don't give up either. Verse 8. 
says Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. It's a familiar verse. It reminds us of Christ's divinity, his unchangeableness, his immutability. We can circle back to chapter 1, verses 10 through 12, where, where the writer, quoting from the Old Testament, says that, that the nations, they, they'll, they'll disappear. They, you'll change them like a garment, but you never change. Jesus is Yahweh. But this seems like such a strange place for a statement here. Remember your leaders, imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. What, what does Jesus' immutability have to do with my suffering? How does this have to have any impact on what he's saying here or what he's about to say? If we just rip this out of context and we use it as a proof text, look, Jesus never changes, God never changes, Jesus is God, and we leave it at that, we've missed what's going on here because this indicative is actually perfectly sandwiched between the imperatives of verses 7 and 9. Your teachers proclaimed Jesus to you. Remember your leaders. Remember those who spoke the word of God. What was the object that they were proclaiming to you if it was not Jesus, if it wasn't his gospel. Your teachers proclaim this Jesus to you. The message has not changed over the course of time. Consider the outcome of their way of life. Though your leaders are gone, Jesus remains the same. I remember growing up in Tulsa, I loved my pastor, Brother Jimmy. He died uh, my junior year of college. He had uh, brain cancer. But I still remember him. He had such a massive impact on my life. But he's gone. He's gone. I can't call him up. I can't write to him. I can't ask him his advice. I can't Look to him for encouragement. Remember your leaders, even though they're gone. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Christianity is not dependent on one individual or personality, but on the gospel of the eternal Son of God. Your leaders are going to die. Your mentors are going to die. They are going to fade away. They will be nothing but a memory. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so verse 9, do not be led away. Jesus is the same. So do not be led away. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings. These new and strange teachings, they will come and they will go. Just go to any Christian bookstore and you'll see the, the latest book, the latest idea, the latest teacher. That, and give it a couple of months and they'll be replaced. These diverse teachings, they, they just cycle through depending on what makes the most money. And once you don't make any more money, you'll be regulated to the back of the, the store. They will just cycle through. Your circumstances will 
change. They will come and go. You will experience highs and lows, joys and sorrows. Jesus remains the same. So do not be led away. The same warning is given in chapter 2, verse 1, where he writes, Therefore we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. It's the same word that's used in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 14. It's the reason why we need pastors and teachers in the church. Until we all reach full maturity in the faith, no longer being like children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Don't be led astray. Don't, don't jump into the stream of the new exciting teaching. It will just sweep you along like you're in a roaring river. Diverse and strange teachings, this adjective strange, it's derogatory. You can think of the strange woman in the book of Proverbs. These are not harmless teachings. These are not, well, it's just your opinion, whether we should listen to it or not. No, this is arsenic for your soul. And so do not be led away by them. But rather, he says, it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. It's good for your heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods. The, the problem throughout Hebrews has been the heart. Chapter 3, verse 8, do not harden your hearts. Chapter 3, verse 10, they always go astray in their heart. Chapter 3, verse 12, take care lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart. But the cure is also for the heart. In chapter 8, verse 10, God says, I will write my laws on their hearts. And so the, the natural consequences in chapter 10 verse 22 let us draw near with a true heart it is good for your heart to be strengthened by grace not by foods in context he's referring to judaism and their ceremonial mills but we know from letters like colossians that there were other strange diverse teachings that we're teaching a form of asceticism that if you deprive yourselves of eating certain foods, then you'll be more spiritual than other people. If you follow the Daniel diet, you'll, you'll be on the right path. It's good for your heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods. Life is messy and hostile. Even in the context of Judaism, leaving the church and going back to the, 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 the old ways, the old religion of the temple sacrifices, it didn't alleviate their problems. The Jews were constantly being harassed by the Romans. Within just a few short years of the writing of this book, Jerusalem and the temple would be decimated. Those who leave Christianity, who ignore this book and go back to the temple sacrifices, 
when Rome destroys the temple in 70 AD, where will they be then? What will sustain you then? What will keep you then? Certainly not food. Certainly not ceremonies. What you need is grace. You're probably saying to yourself, George, I know I'm not saved by what I do or don't eat. We don't fall into that trap, right? The point is these Christians are being tempted to accept these ceremonies again to avoid persecution. Why are they being tempted to go back to the temple and the sacrifices and the priests and, and all the ceremonies? It's because they're being persecuted and they want it to end. What might we be tempted to adopt in order to avoid persecution? Perhaps a more progressive, enlightened view of homosexuality? Maybe if we just accept, along with our culture, that gender really is fluid, and, and we really can't speak of male and female. There, there's a whole plethora of different identifications we can go by. We were just talking this morning, Jack and I, about theistic evolution. Us Christians, we are just country bumpkins for believing that God could create everything in six days. We have to accept billions of years of evolutionary process. Maybe if we adopt that, the scientific community will welcome us with open arms. If we'll simply jump on board with these issues, much of the pressure from our culture will be relieved. If we accept homosexuality as valid, we really don't have any problems. I saw this on Twitter this past week. This person says, is there anything more tragicomic than silly old Christian academics arguing for evolutionary theory while actual scientists are admitting that empirical science is exposing the theory as fundamentally flawed? An article just came out this last week that, that indicates that all animals popped into existence at the same time. I know, I'm as shocked as you guys are. I mean, where have we heard that before, right? When Christians follow the world, then when opinions change or when science changes, our credibility takes a massive hit. We have to change too. Instead of just opening up God's word and believing it, and not being led astray by diverse and strange teachings because Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. We don't have to continually change with the culture. Stick with the text. Cling to the gospel. But not only should we be careful not to be led astray, he also exhorts us in verses 12 through 14 to not be ashamed. Do not be ashamed. Look at what he says in verse 10. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. Throughout the book of Hebrews, he has claimed that we have certain things, 
chapter 4 and chapter 8, we have a great high priest. Chapter 6, verse 19, we have a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. In chapter 10, verse 19, we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. And here in chapter 13, verse 10, we have an altar. Much ink has been used in trying to decide what this altar is. Some have argued that it means that we need to have an actual altar in our church. Some say that it's related to the Eucharist, to the Lord's Supper. Some say it's the heavenly altar. He's spoken a lot throughout the book of the heavenly temple. Some, like John Owen, simply says it's, it's just Jesus himself. Perhaps it's best not to press the language too far. The picture that we have here is one of separation. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent, those who are Levitical priests who are serving in the temple, they have no right to eat from this altar. And it goes on in verse 11 to say, For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. He's, he's bringing us Old Testament imagery. It's, in a broad sense, it's, it's all the sacrifices for sin that were made in Leviticus chapter 4 and, and Leviticus chapter 16. But, but particularly, as he's talking about the, the high priest bringing the, the blood into the holy places, he's, he's zeroing in on the Day of Atonement. That one day of the year when when one Israelite, the, the high priest, took the blood of bulls and, and goats and took it into the Holy of Holies and sprinkled the blood on the Ark of the Covenant to, to cover the sins of the entire nation. And this sacrifice, there, there are, are rules and laws in the Old Testament that describe that, that other sacrifices can be eaten by the priest. It, it, the sacrifices are actually part of, of uh, providing for the needs of the priest and their families. They can eat of, of certain animal sacrifices. But for these sin offerings, for the Day of Atonement sacrifice, they are not allowed to eat from these animals. The bodies of these animals, they are taken outside the camp and they are burned. And what he's saying here by saying we have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat, as he's drawing us into this, this imagery of the Day of Atonement as the, the bodies of the, the animals who are sacrificed for sin are, are carried outside the camp and they are burned. He's saying we have the reality to which the Day of Atonement sacrifice pointed. We have the greater Day of Atonement sacrifice, if you will. We have one who, who has also gone outside the camp. And in the same way, he says, those who are committed to the Levitical sacrificial system, they have no part in the true atonement accomplished by Christ. If you want to, to go back to the temple, if you want to go back to the sacrificial system, if you want to go back to this day of atonement and the sin sacrifices, 
Well, we actually have an altar that you have no right, you have no authority to eat from because we have the reality and you're over here playing with the shadows. And so he's calling upon the Christians to separate themselves from the system, separate themselves from this, this old covenant sacrificial system because we have the reality. The Day of Atonement sacrifice pointed forward to Jesus as the, the animal was slain and its blood was sprinkled on the altar and its body was taken outside the camp. Jesus, he says in verse 12, also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Outside the camp, if you can picture in your mind the The camp of the Israelites in the very center is the, the tabernacle surrounded by the Levites. And then as you move outward, you have the camps of the different tribes. And then outside the camp is the place of, of uncleanness. It's where the lepers had to live. It's a place of shame. If you had some kind of impurity in your body, outside the camp you go. It was the place of death. If you think back to Leviticus chapter 24, it's where the blasphemer is stoned. Numbers chapter 15, it's where the Sabbath breaker is stoned. It's the place of, of uncleanness and shame and death and separation. Blasphemy and Sabbath breaking, those were charges brought against Jesus. And so he went outside the gate. He went outside the city of Jerusalem and he, he suffered and he, he died. He went to that place of shame and death. Chapter 12, verse 2 says that he despised the shame. And in an ironic twist, outside the gates, outside the camp, in the place of uncleanness and shame and death, he sanctified the people. the place of impurity and shame, the object of a curse. The cross has become, in the wisdom of God, the place of salvation for all who would believe in Jesus. And just as Jesus suffered and died outside the camp, verse 13, therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. As Jesus suffered and died outside the camp, we too must go outside to him, outside to the place of shame and contempt, outside to that place that was considered accursed by the Jews and considered foolish and stupid to the Gentiles, outside to the place where you too must die with Jesus. You may be here and have never trusted Christ and be hearing all this talk of shame and rejection and persecution and death and you may be thinking to yourself, George, you are a terrible salesman. But you have to go out if you want to follow Jesus. You can't stay connected to this world system and also be a follower of Jesus. 
You cannot serve two masters. He's telling them you cannot go back to the old covenant ceremonies and the sacrifices and the temple and still claim to be a follower of Jesus. They are mutually opposed to each other. You can't follow Jesus and still live in the protection of the city walls. To be a disciple of Jesus, not just someone who goes to church on Sunday mornings and labels themselves a Christian when asked, but to be a true disciple of Jesus is to go outside the camp and be exposed to the same kinds of reproach as Jesus was. And this may sound scary. This may sound terrifying to you to think that to be a follower of Jesus means that you have to suffer the mocking and the, the reproach of co-workers or fellow students or family members or strangers. But the glory of this is that when we go out we get to go out to him. We get to go out to him. We're not going out alone. We're not going out to some ceremony or some, some outward religion. We are going out to Jesus. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6? about treasures. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where is your treasure? Where's your treasure? Is it inside the gates of the city? That's where your heart's going to be. And so you're going to be afraid to leave. What's going to happen to all my stuff? But if you treasure Jesus more than anything else, if you hold him up of infinite value, then your heart is yearning to go outside to him. And nothing in the cosmos can keep you away from him. You will abandon everything to go to Jesus because you love him and you treasure him. There's an illusion here going out Turn with me to Exodus chapter 33. Exodus chapter 33. Exodus chapter 32 is the golden calf incident. God has entered into covenant with the people of Israel and they immediately break it and worship a golden calf. Moses intercedes for the people before God. Then we have this curious incident in chapter 33. Verses 7 
through 10. Now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp. And he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. Whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people would rise up, and each would stand at his tent door and watch Moses until he had gone into the tent. When Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent, and the Lord would speak with Moses. And when all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship, each at his tent door. Where did he set up the tent? Outside the camp. Why? Israel has rejected their God. And so he sets up camp outside. He sets up his meeting place outside. And anyone who wants to go to God has to leave the camp. And in a fuller sense, everyone who longs to go to God must leave the security and the comfort of of this camp and go out to him. But it's where God is. It's where God is. Outside the camp may be dangerous, but it is where Jesus is, and he is beautiful, and he is glorious. He is infinite treasure. And all the security, respectability, comfort in this world is less than nothing compared to the infinite worth of knowing Christ. Remember how we opened the service? Philippians chapter 3. All of Paul's accomplishments, all of his stuff, all of his accolades and his respectability, he says, I consider it as dung for the sake of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Today you may not know Christ you may still be holding on to the things of this world. Friend, Jesus is better. Jesus is better. Run to Christ. Run to the cross. Turn away from your sins. Turn away from this world and trust in him and, and you will find forgiveness and you will find reconciliation. But most of all, you'll find God. Go to him. Let us go out to him and bear the same reproach as him. Because he goes on in verse 14 to say, For here, we have no lasting city. We have no lasting city. We have a high priest. We have a short, steadfast anchor. We have confidence to enter the holy place. We have an altar. But what we don't have is we do not have a lasting city. Here. All the supposed comfort and security of this world is merely an illusion. Don't go back to Jerusalem because in a few years, Jerusalem's going to be a smoldering heap of rubble. That's not where your security lies. That's not where your comfort lies. Don't hold on to the things of this world. Don't store up treasures here on earth where moth will eat it and rust will destroy it. God will shake everything. 
leaving only the things that are eternal. Don't waste your life chasing fool's gold. Pursue that which will endure forever. We have no lasting city here, but we seek the city that is to come. And as we seek the city that is to come, we are imitating the faith of our father Abraham. Chapter 11, verse 10, we learn that Abraham was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. In verse 16, we read that that Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, what? God is not ashamed to be called their God. We could spend hours meditating upon that. God is not ashamed to be called their God. For he has prepared for them a city. I live in Lawton. Lawton is one of the most dangerous cities in Oklahoma. Go on Facebook to the Lawton community page. Did I just hear gunshots? Where was that gunshot? I was listening to the police scanner. There were gunshots. Lawton is not my home. It's just where I live for now. Let us go out to Jesus. We don't have a lasting city here. We are seeking the city that is to come. And there won't be any gunshots there. Don't be led astray. Don't be ashamed. Finally, verses 15 and 16. Don't give up. Don't give up. Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. It might be assumed through everything that he has said in this letter that since Christians no longer participate in the sacrificial system in Jerusalem, that we are free to live however we please or, or to withdraw from society. Well, we don't offer sacrifices at a temple anymore, so we, we don't have any business talking about sacrifices or, or offerings. But, but that's not correct. We, we actually are offering purer, truer, lasting sacrifices. In verse 15, he's focused on our words. And in verse 16, he's focusing on our deeds. In word, we are to continually offer up a sacrifice of praise. Sacrifice of praise. This has already been hinted at in places like Psalm 50. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the Most High and call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. Mark this then, you who forget God, lest I tear you apart and there be none to deliver. The one who offers thanksgiving as his sacrifice glorifies me. One who orders his way rightly, I will show the salvation of God. This is the will of God for Christians. 
1 Thessalonians chapter 5, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Your mouth reveals what's in your heart. He tells them to continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. The fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. This sounds pretty unremarkable until we think of the circumstances of the people he's writing to as they are being persecuted and thrown into prison and having all of their property confiscated. And here he tells them, Remember to praise God continually. Not just when the Romans allow you to live peacefully, but when they are sending you to the lions. Continually praise God and offer up the fruit of lips that what? Acknowledge his name. Not denying that you're a Christian, but openly professing faith in Jesus. This is what pleases God in your words and in your deeds. Don't neglect to do good. Don't forget to share with those who are in need. This is the opposite of self-preservation. It takes a heart that is being strengthened by grace rather than just superficial religion to continually offer up praises to God when persecution hits. It takes a powerful working of grace, strengthening the heart to be more concerned for your neighbor than for yourself when your world is crumbling under godless oppression. But this is what they've been doing in chapter 10. Recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction and sometimes being partners with those so treated, for you had compassion on those in prison and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one, you had a lasting city, and so they were joyful. The reality is that all too often we let our emotions and circumstances control our actions. So when things are going well, we're happy and all too ready to obey by giving thanksgiving and praise and remembering other people. Hey, bank account's going really well right now. I think I can give some to those who are struggling. That's not what he tells them here. When your property's being confiscated, remember those who are suffering. Give to those who are in need. When things go south, we often are filled with anger and bitterness. Why me? The aim of these verses is to urge you to persevere in godliness despite your circumstances. Don't give up. 
don't withdraw from society simply because there's opposition. Go out of the camp and suffer reproach and shame and the hardships of being a follower of Jesus. And in this way, as you as you continually praise God, as you continually acknowledge Christ with your lips, as you continually remember to do good to others and to, to provide for those who are in need, you are offering pleasing sacrifices to God. When we consider what Christ has done for us, is this so out of the question. When we consider that while we were still enemies of God, not, not friends of God, not righteous people, while we were enemies, while we were still sinners, Christ went outside the gates and he suffered and he died for us. He experienced the curses of God, the full wrath and justice of God in our place. And the Holy Spirit applies that work to you, bringing you to Christ. You have forgiveness of sins through the blood of Jesus. You have the promises that those who were called are justified. Those who are justified are glorified. We don't know what we will be, but we know we'll be like him because we will see him as he is. We know that we have a city built by God. and That God is not ashamed to be our God. Won't we go out? Won't we go outside the camp to Christ? Won't we suffer the reproach of being a Christian? Isn't Jesus of, of greater value than all of the things of this world? Don't be led astray by the diverse and strange teachings that are going to be popping up. Don't be ashamed to be a Christian. Don't be ashamed to, to be zealous for the gospel and to open your mouth and proclaim Christ to those who are perishing. But don't give up. Don't give up. We don't suffer in this country like our brothers and sisters around the world. We don't have to dig a hole in the ground and jump in and whisper so that the authorities don't see or hear us like they do in places like North Korea. We don't have to be afraid that the, the government followed us here and they're, they're getting ready to break down the doors and arrest all of us. But don't use our relatively pleasant circumstances here in America as some kind of excuse of, oh, this text doesn't apply to me. Persecution's on the way. Persecution is on the way. Don't, don't put on your blinders. 
Don't put your hope in the Supreme Court. Oh, they'll get it right one of these days. Don't put your hope in the president. Persecution will come to America. And don't imagine that if you are failing to obey these words today that you'll somehow magically be able to obey when persecution hits. You don't learn how to hit when you're standing in the batter's box facing down a 98-mile-per-hour fastball. You train yourself before the game. Don't be led astray. Don't be ashamed. Don't give up. Remember the gospel of Christ. Remember what he has done for us. Go out to him and offer continually pleasing sacrifices to him because he is infinitely worthy. Let's pray. Who are we that we should experience these many blessings? Who are we that we should be called sons of God? That we should experience the blessings of Christ, the benefits of his death and resurrection. And yet, God, you've been so gracious to us Father, forgive us where we have so foolishly looked for comfort in the things of this world. Forgive us where we have been quiet and ashamed to proclaim the gospel to our, our co-workers or our neighbors or our family members. Forgive us for not treasuring Jesus. God, I pray that today your church will be strengthened through your word. I pray that your spirit uses this, this frail message from me in some way to build up to encourage your people. And God, I pray that if there's anyone here who doesn't know Christ, that your spirit will do his work of drawing them to Jesus. Open their eyes to see the glories of Christ and that he is worthy, that he is worth abandoning everything this world says we should value. I pray that they will run to the cross God, have your way amongst us today. Be glorified. May the name of Jesus be lifted up. And We pray these things because of what he's done for us and in his name. Amen.